Section 18 of Hard Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Lynn. Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Book 3, Chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3. Very Decided. The indefatigable Mrs. Sparsit, with a violent cold upon her, her voice reduced to a whisper, and her stately frame so racked by continual sneezes that it seemed in danger of dismemberment, gave chase to her patron until she found him in the metropolis, and there, majestically sweeping in upon him at his hotel in St. James's Street, exploded the combustibles with which she was charged, and blew up. Having executed her mission with infinite relish, this high-minded woman then fainted away on Mr. Bounderby's coat-collar. Mr. Bounderby's first procedure was to shake Mrs. Sparsit off, and leave her to progress as she might through various stages of suffering on the floor. He next had recourse to the administration of potent restoratives, such as screwing the patient's thumbs, smiting her hands, abundantly watering her face, and inserting salt in her mouth. When these attentions had recovered her, which they speedily did, he hustled her into a fast train without offering any other refreshment, and carried her back to Coketown more dead than alive. Regarded as a classical ruin, Mrs. Sparsit was an interesting spectacle on her arrival at her journey's end, but considered in any other light, the amount of damage she had by that time sustained was excessive, and impaired her claims to admiration. Utterly heedless of the wear and tear of her clothes, and constitution, and adamant to her pathetic sneezes, Mr. Bounderby immediately crammed her into a coach, and bore her off to Stone Lodge. "'Now, Tom Gradgrind,' said Bounderby, bursting into his father-in-law's room late at night, "'here's a lady here, Mrs. Sparsit. You know Mrs. Sparsit? Who has something to say to you that will strike you dumb?' "'You have missed my letter!' exclaimed Mr. Gradgrind, surprised by the apparition. "'Missed your letter, sir,' bawled Bounderby. "'The present time is no time for letters. No man shall talk to Josiah Bounderby of Coketown about letters with his mind in the state it's in now.' "'Bounderby,' said Mr. Gradgrind, in a tone of temperate remonstrance, "'I speak of a very special letter I have written to you in reference to Louisa.' "'Tom Gradgrind,' replied Bounderby, knocking the flat of his hand several times with great vehemence on the table, "'I speak of a very special messenger that has come to me, in reference to Louisa. Mrs. Sparsit, ma'am, stand forward.' That unfortunate lady, hereupon essaying to offer testimony, without any voice, and with painful gestures expressive of an inflamed throat, became so aggravating, and underwent so many facial contortions, that Mr. Bounderby, unable to bear it, seized her by the arm and shook her. "'If you can't get it out, ma'am,' said Bounderby, "'leave me to get it out. This is not a time for a lady, however highly connected, to be totally inaudible and seemingly swallowing marbles. Tom Gradgrind, Mrs. Sparsit latterly found herself by accident in a situation to overhear a conversation out of doors between your daughter and your precious gentleman friend, Mr. James Harthouse. Indeed, said Mr. Gradgrind. Ah, indeed, cried Bounderby, and in that conversation— 
"'It is not necessary to repeat its tenor, Bounderby. I know what passed.' "'You do?' "'Perhaps,' said Bounderby, staring with all his might at his so quiet and assuasive father-in-law, "'you know where your daughter is at the present time?' "'Undoubtedly. She is here.' "'Here?' "'My dear Bounderby, let me beg you to restrain these loud outbreaks on all accounts. Louisa is here. The moment she could detach herself from that interview with the person of whom you speak, and whom I deeply regret to have been the means of introducing to you, Louisa hurried here for protection.' I myself had not been at home many hours when I received her, here, in this room. She hurried by the train to town. She ran from town to this house through a raging storm, and presented herself before me in a state of distraction. Of course she has remained here ever since. Let me entreat you, for your own sake and for hers, to be more quiet. Mr. Bounderby silently gazed about him for some moments, in every direction except Mrs. Sparsit's direction and then, abruptly turning upon the niece of Lady Scadgers, said to that wretched woman, "'Now, ma'am, we shall be happy to hear any little apology you may think proper to offer for going about the country at express pace, with no other luggage than a cock and a bull, ma'am.' "'Sir,' whispered Mrs. Sparsit, "'my nerves are at present too much shaken, and my health is at present too much impaired in your service to admit of my doing more than taking refuge in tears,' which she did.' "'Well, ma'am,' said Bounderby, "'without making any observation to you "'that may not be made with propriety "'to a woman of good family, "'what I have got to add to that "'is that there is something else "'in which it appears to me you may take refuge, "'namely a coach. "'And the coach in which we came here being at the door, "'you'll allow me to hand you down to it "'and pack you home to the bank, "'where the best course for you to pursue "'will be to put your feet into the hottest water you can bear "'and take a glass of scalding rum and butter "'after you get into bed.' With these words, Mr. Bounderby extended his right hand to the weeping lady, and escorted her to the conveyance in question, shedding many plaintive sneezes by the way. He soon returned alone. "'Now, as you showed me in your face, Tom Gradgrind, that you wanted to speak to me,' he resumed, "'here I am. But I am not in a very agreeable state, I tell you plainly.' not relishing this business, even as it is, and not considering that I am at any time as dutifully and submissively treated by your daughter as Josiah Bounderby of Coketown ought to be treated by his wife. You have your opinion, I dare say, and I have mine, I know. If you mean to say anything to me to-night that goes against this candid remark, you had better let it alone. Mr. Gradgrind, it will be observed, being much softened, Mr. Bounderby took particular pains to harden himself at all points. It was his amiable nature. "'My dear Bounderby,' Mr. Gradgrind began in reply. "'Now, you'll excuse me,' said Bounderby, "'but I don't want to be too dear. "'That to start with. "'When I begin to be dear to a man, "'I generally find that his intention is to come over me. "'I am not speaking to you politely, "'but as you are aware, I am not polite. "'If you like politeness, you know where to get it. "'You have your gentlemen friends, you know, "'and they'll serve you with as much of the article as you want.' I don't keep it myself. Bounderby, urged Mr. Gradgrind, we are all liable to mistakes. I thought you couldn't make them, interrupted Bounderby. Perhaps I thought so, but I say we are all liable to mistakes, and I should feel sensible of your delicacy and grateful for it if you would spare me these references to Harthouse. I shall not associate him in our conversation with your intimacy and encouragement. "'Pray do not persist in connecting him with mine.' 
"'I never mentioned his name,' said Bounderby. "'Well, well,' returned Mr. Gradgrind, with a patient, even a submissive air, and he sat for a little while pondering. "'Bounderby, I see reason to doubt whether we have ever quite understood Louisa.' "'Who do you mean by we?' "'Let me say I, then,' he returned, in answer to the coarsely blurted question. "'I doubt whether I have understood Louisa. I doubt whether I have been quite right in the manner of her education.' "'There you hit it,' returned Bounderby. "'There I agree with you. You have found it out at last, have you? Education! I'll tell you what education is. To be tumbled out of doors, neck and crop, and put upon the shortest allowance of everything except blows. That's what I call education.' "'I think your good sense will perceive,' Mr. Gradgrind remonstrated, in all humility, "'that whatever the merits of such a system may be, it would be difficult of general application to girls.' "'I don't see it at all, sir,' returned the obstinate Bounderby. "'Well,' sighed Mr. Gradgrind, "'we will not enter into the question. "'I assure you I have no desire to be controversial. "'I seek to repair what is amiss, if I possibly can.' "'and I hope you will assist me in a good spirit, Bounderby, "'for I have been very much distressed.' "'I don't understand you yet,' said Bounderby, "'with determined obstinacy, "'and therefore I won't make any promises.' "'In the course of a few hours, my dear Bounderby,' "'Mr. Gradgrind proceeded, "'in the same depressed and propitiatory manner, "'I appear to myself to have become better informed "'as to Louisa's character than in previous years. "'The Enlightenment has been painfully forced upon me, and the discovery is not mine. I think there are—Bounderby, you will be surprised to hear me say this—I think there are qualities in Louisa which—which have been harshly neglected and—and a little perverted, and—and I would suggest to you that—that if you would kindly meet me in a timely endeavour to leave her to her better nature for a while, and to encourage it to develop itself by tenderness and consideration, it— "'It would be the better for the happiness of all of us. "'Louisa,' said Mr. Gradgrind, shading his face with his hand, "'has always been my favourite child.' "'The blusterous Bounderby crimsoned and swelled to such an extent on hearing these words "'that he seemed to be, and probably was, on the brink of a fit. "'With his very ears a bright purple shot with crimson, "'he pent up his indignation, however, and said, "'You'd like to keep her here for a time?' "'I—' "'I had intended to recommend, my dear Bounderby, "'that you should allow Louisa to remain here on a visit "'and be attended by Sissy, "'I mean, of course, Cecilia Jupe, "'who understands her and in whom she trusts.' "'I gather from all this, Tom Gradgrind,' said Bounderby, "'standing up with his hands in his pockets, "'that you are of opinion that there is what people call "'some incompatibility between Lou Bounderby and myself.' "'I fear there is at present a general incompatibility between Louisa and—and—and and, and almost all the relations in which I have placed her,' was her father's sorrowful reply. "'Now look you here, Tom Gradgrind,' said Bounderby the Flushed, confronting him with his legs wide apart, his hands deeper in his pockets, and his hair like a hayfield wherein his windy anger was boisterous. "'You have said your say. I am going to say mine.' I am a Coketown man. I am Josiah Bounderby of Coketown. I know the bricks of this town, and I know the works of this town, and I know the chimneys of this town, and I know the smoke of this town, and I know the hands of this town. I know them all pretty well. 
They're real. When a man tells me anything about imaginative qualities, I always tell that man, whoever he is, that I know what he means. He means turtle soup and venison with a gold spoon, and that he wants to be set up with a coach and six. That's what your daughter wants. Since you are of opinion that she ought to have what she wants, I recommend you to provide it for her, because Tom Gradgrind, she will never have it from me. "'Bounderby,' said Mr. Gradgrind, "'I hoped, after my entreaty, you would have taken a different tone.' "'Just wait a bit,' retorted Bounderby. "'You have said your say, I believe. I heard you out. Hear me out, if you please. Don't make yourself a spectacle of unfairness as well as inconsistency, because, although I am sorry to see Tom Gradgrind reduced to his present position, I should be doubly sorry to see him brought so low as that.' "'Now, there's an incompatibility of some sort or another, I am given to understand by you, between your daughter and me. I'll give you to understand, in reply to that, that there unquestionably is an incompatibility of the first magnitude, to be summed up in this, that your daughter don't properly know her husband's merits, and is not impressed with such a sense as would become her, by George, of the honour of his alliance. That's plain speaking, I hope.' "'Bounderby,' urged Mr. Gradgrind, "'this is unreasonable.' "'Is it?' said Bounderby. "'I am glad to hear you say so, "'because when Tom Gradgrind, with his new lights, "'tells me that what I say is unreasonable, "'I am convinced at once it must be devilish sensible. "'With your permission I am going on. "'You know my origin, "'and you know that for a good many years of my life "'I didn't want a shoeing-horn, "'in consequence of not having a shoe. "'Yet you may believe or not, as you think proper,' that there are ladies, born ladies, belonging to families, families, who next to worship the ground I walk on. He discharged this like a rocket at his father-in-law's head. "'Whereas your daughter,' proceeded Bounderby, "'is far from being a born lady. That you know yourself. Not that I care a pinch of candle-snuff about such things, for you are very well aware I don't. But that such is the fact, and you, Tom Gradgrind, can't change it. "'Why do I say this?' "'Not, I fear,' observed Mr. Gradgrind, in a low voice, "'to spare me. "'Hear me out,' said Bounderby, "'and refrain from cutting in till your turn comes round. "'I say this because highly connected females "'have been astonished to see the way "'in which your daughter has conducted herself "'and to witness her insensibility. "'They have wondered how I have suffered it, "'and I wonder myself now, and I won't suffer it.' "'Bounderby,' returned Mr. Gradgrind, rising, the less we say to-night, the better, I think. On the contrary, Tom Gradgrind, the more we say to-night, the better, I think. That is, the consideration checked him, till I have said all I mean to say, and then I don't care how soon we stop. I come to a question that may shorten the business. What do you mean by the proposal you made just now? What do I mean, Bounderby? By your visiting proposition, said Bounderby, "'with an inflexible jerk of the hayfield. "'I mean that I hope you may be induced "'to arrange in a friendly manner "'for allowing Louisa a period of repose and reflection here, "'which may tend to a gradual alteration for the better "'in many respects. "'To a softening down of your ideas of the incompatibility,' "'said Bounderby, if you put it in those terms. "'What made you think of this?' said Bounderby. "'I have already said. I fear Louisa has not been understood. "'Is it asking too much, Bounderby, that you, so far her elder, "'should aid in trying to set her right? "'You have accepted a great charge of her, 
for better, for worse, for... Mr. Bounderby may have been annoyed by the repetition of his own words to Stephen Blackpool, but he cut the quotation short with an angry start. "'Come,' said he, "'I don't want to be told about that. I know what I took her for as well as you do. Never you mind what I took her for. That's my lookout.' "'I was merely going on to remark, Bounderby, that we may all be more or less in the wrong, not even excepting you, and that some yielding on your part—' remembering the trust you have accepted, may not only be an act of true kindness, but perhaps a debt incurred towards Louisa. "'I think differently,' blustered Bounderby. "'I am going to finish this business according to my own opinions. Now, I don't want to make a quarrel of it with you, Tom Gradgrind. To tell you the truth, I don't think it would be worthy of my reputation to quarrel on such a subject. As to your gentleman friend, he may take himself off wherever he likes best.' If he falls in my way, I shall tell him my mind. If he don't fall in my way, I shan't, for it won't be worth my while to do it. As to your daughter, whom I made Lou Bounderby, and might have done better by leaving Lou Gradgrind, if she don't come home to-morrow by twelve o'clock at noon, I shall understand that she prefers to stay away, and I shall send her wearing apparel and so forth over here, and you'll take charge of her for the future.' What I shall say to people in general of the incompatibility that led to my so laying down the law will be this. I am Josiah Bounderby, and I had my bringing up. She's the daughter of Tom Gradgrind, and she had her bringing up, and the two horses wouldn't pull together. I am pretty well known to be rather an uncommon man, I believe, and most people will understand fast enough that it must be a woman rather out of the common, also, who in the long run would come up to my mark." "'Let me seriously entreat you to reconsider this, Bounderby,' urged Mr. Gradgrind, "'before you commit yourself to such a decision.' "'I always come to a decision,' said Bounderby, tossing his hat on, "'and whatever I do, I do at once. "'I should be surprised at Tom Gradgrind's addressing such a remark "'to Josiah Bounderby of Coketown, knowing what he knows of him, "'if I could be surprised by anything Tom Gradgrind did "'after his making himself a party to sentimental humbug.' I have given you my decision, and I have got no more to say. Good night. So Mr. Bounderby went home to his townhouse to bed. At five minutes past twelve o'clock next day, he directed Mrs. Bounderby's property to be carefully packed up and sent to Tom Gradgrind's, advertised his country retreat for sale by private contract, and resumed a bachelor life. Chapter 4 Lost the robbery at the bank had not languished before, and did not cease to occupy a front place in the attention of the principal of that establishment now. In boastful proof of his promptitude and activity as a remarkable man, and a self-made man, and a commercial wonder more admirable than Venus, who had risen out of the mud instead of the sea, he liked to show how little his domestic affairs abated his business ardour. Consequently, in the first few weeks of his resumed bachelorhood, he even advanced upon his usual display of bustle, and every day made such a rout in renewing his investigations into the robbery, that the officers who had it in hand almost wished it had never been committed. They were at fault, too, and off the scent. Although they had been so quiet since the first outbreak of the matter, that most people really did suppose it to have been abandoned as hopeless, nothing new occurred. No implicated man or woman took untimely courage or made a self-betraying step. 
More remarkable yet, Stephen Blackpool could not be heard of, and the mysterious old woman remained a mystery. Things having come to this pass, and showing no latent signs of stirring beyond it, the upshot of Mr. Bounderby's investigations was that he resolved to hazard a bold burst. He drew up a placard offering twenty pounds reward for the apprehension of Stephen Blackpool, suspected of complicity in the robbery of Coketown Bank on such a night. He described the said Stephen Blackpool by dress, complexion, estimated height, and manner as minutely as he could. He recited how he had left the town, and in what direction he had been last seen going. He had the whole printed in great black letters on a staring broadsheet, and he caused the walls to be posted with it in the dead of night, so that it should strike upon the sight of the whole population at one blow. The factory bells had need to ring their loudest that morning, to disperse the groups of workers who stood in the tardy daybreak, collected round the placards, devouring them with eager eyes. Not the least eager of the eyes assembled were the eyes of those who could not read. These people, as they listened to the friendly voice that read aloud, there was always some such ready to help them, stared at the characters which meant so much with a vague awe and respect that would have been half ludicrous if any aspect of public ignorance could ever be otherwise than threatening and full of evil. Many ears and eyes were busy with a vision of the matter of these placards, among turning spindles, rattling looms, and whirling wheels for hours afterwards, and when the hands cleared out again into the streets, there were still as many readers as before. Slackbridge, the delegate, had to address his audience, too, that night, and Slackbridge had obtained a clean bill from the printer, and had brought it in his pocket. "'Oh, my friends and fellow-countrymen, the downtrodden operatives of Coketown, Oh, my fellow brothers and fellow workmen and fellow citizens and fellow men, what a to-do was there when Slackbridge unfolded what he called that damning document, and held it up to the gaze and for the execration of the working-man community. Oh, my fellow men, behold of what a traitor in the camp of those great spirits who are enrolled upon the holy scroll of justice and of union is appropriately capable." O oh, my prostrate friends, with the galling yoke of tyrants on your necks, and the iron foot of despotism treading down your fallen forms into the dust of the earth, upon which right glad would your oppressors be to see you creeping on your bellies all the days of your lives, like the serpent in the garden. O oh, my brothers, and shall I as a man not add, my sisters too, what do you say now of Stephen Blackpool, with a slight stoop in his shoulders, and about five foot seven in height, as set forth in this degrading and disgusting document, this blighting bill, this pernicious placard, this abominable advertisement, and with what majesty of denouncement will you crush the viper, who would bring this stain and shame upon the godlike race that happily has cast him out for ever? Yes, my compatriots, happily cast him out and sent him forth. For you remember how he stood here before you on this platform, you remember how, face to face and foot to foot, I pursued him through all his intricate windings. You remember how he sneaked and slunk and sidled and splitted of straws, until, with not an inch of ground to which to cling, I hurled him out from amongst us, an object for the undying finger of scorn to point at, and for the avenging fire of every free and thinking mind to scorch and scar. And now, my friends, my labouring friends, 
for I rejoice and triumph in that stigma. My friends, whose hard but honest beds are made in toil, and whose scanty but independent pots are boiled in hardship, and now, I say, my friends, what appellation has that dastard craven taken to himself when, with the mask torn from his features, he stands before us in all his native deformity? A what? A thief, a plunderer, a proscribed fugitive with a price upon his head, a fester and a wound upon the noble character of the Coketown operative. Therefore, my band of brothers, in a sacred bond, to which your children and your children's children yet unborn have set their infant hands and seals, I propose to you, on the part of the United Aggregate Tribunal, ever watchful for your welfare, ever zealous for your benefit, that this meeting does resolve, that Stephen Blackpool, Weaver, referred to in this placard, having been already solemnly disowned by the community of Coketown Hands, the same are free from the shame of his misdeeds, and cannot, as a class, be reproached with his dishonest actions. Thus Slackbridge, gnashing and perspiring after a prodigious sort. A few stern voices called out, No! and a score or two hailed, with assenting cries of, Hear, hear! the caution from one man. Slackbridge, you're overheader, ain't? You're a-goin' too fast! But these were pygmies against an army. The general assemblage subscribed to the gospel according to Slackbridge, and gave three cheers for him, as he sat demonstratively panting at them. These men and women were yet in the streets, passing quietly to their homes, when Sissy, who had been called away from Louisa some minutes before, returned. "'Who is it?' asked Louisa. "'It is Mr. Bounderby,' said Sissy, timid of the name, "'and your brother, Mr. Tom.' "'and a young woman who says her name is Rachel, and that you know her. "'What do they want, Sissy dear?' "'They want to see you. Rachel has been crying, and seems angry.' "'Father,' said Louisa, for he was present, "'I cannot refuse to see them, for a reason that will explain itself. "'Shall they come in here?' "'As he answered in the affirmative, Sissy went away to bring them. "'She reappeared with them directly.' Tom was last, and remained standing in the obscurest part of the room near the door. "'Mrs. Bounderby,' said her husband, entering with a cool nod, "'I don't disturb you, I hope. This is an unseasonable hour, but here is a young woman who has been making statements which render my visit necessary. Tom Gradgrind, as your son, young Tom, refuses for some obstinate reason or other to say anything at all about those statements, good or bad, I am obliged to confront her with your daughter.' "'You have seen me once before, young lady,' said Rachel, standing in front of Louisa. Tom coughed. "'You have seen me, young lady,' repeated Rachel, as she did not answer, "'once before.' Tom coughed again. "'I have.' Rachel cast her eyes proudly towards Mr. Bounderby, and said, "'Will you make it known, young lady, where, and who was there?' I went to the house where Stephen Blackpool lodged on the night of his discharge from his work, and I saw you there. He was there, too, and an old woman who did not speak, and whom I could scarcely see, stood in a dark corner. My brother was with me. "'Why couldn't you say so, young Tom?' demanded Bounderby. "'I promised my sister I wouldn't,' which Louisa hastily confirmed. "'And besides,' said the whelp bitterly, she tells her own story so precious well, and so full, 
that what business had I to take it out of her mouth? Say, young lady, if you please, pursued Rachel, why, in an evil hour, you ever came to Stevens that night. I felt compassion for him, said Louisa, her colour deepening, and I wished to know what he was going to do, and wished to offer him assistance. Thank you, ma'am, said Bounderby, much flattered and obliged. Did you offer him, asked Rachel, a bank-note? Yes, but he refused it, and would only take two pounds in gold. Rachel cast her eyes towards Mr. Bounderby again. "'Oh, certainly,' said Bounderby. "'If you put the question whether your ridiculous and improbable account was true or not, I am bound to say it's confirmed.' "'Young lady,' said Rachel, "'Stephen Blackpool is now named as a thief in public print all over this town, and where else? There have been a meeting to-night where he have been spoken of in the same shameful way. Stephen!' "'The honestest lad, the truest lad, the best!' Her indignation failed her, and she broke off sobbing. "'I am very, very sorry,' said Louisa. "'Oh, young lady, young lady,' returned Rachel, "'I hope you may be, but I don't know. "'I can't say what you may have done. "'The like of you don't know us, don't care for us, don't belong to us. "'I am not sure why you may have come that night.' "'Can't tell but what you may have come with some aim of your own, "'not mind into what trouble you brought such as the poor lad. "'I said then, bless you for coming, and I said it of my heart. "'You seem to take so pitifully to him. "'But I don't know now. I don't know.' "'Louisa could not reproach her for her unjust suspicions. "'She was so faithful to her idea of the man, and so afflicted. "'And when I think,' said Rachel through her sobs, "'that the poor lad was so grateful, thinking you so good to him, "'when I mind that he put his hand over his hard work and face "'to hide the tears that you brought up there, "'oh, I hope you may be sorry, and had no bad cause to be it, "'but I don't know, I don't know.' "'You're a pretty article,' growled the whelp, "'moving uneasily in his dark corner, "'to come here with these precious imputations.' "'You ought to be bundled out for not knowing how to behave yourself, "'and you would be by rights.' "'She said nothing in reply, and her low weeping was the only sound that was heard "'until Mr. Bounderby spoke. "'Come,' said he, "'you know what you have engaged to do. "'You had better give your mind to that, not this.' "'Deed, I am loath,' returned Rachel, drying her eyes, "'that any here should see me like this, but I won't be seen so again.' "'Young lady, when I had read what's put in print of Stephen, "'and what has just as much truth in it as if it had been put in print of you, "'I went straight to the bank to say I knew where Stephen was, "'and to give a sure and certain promise that he should be here in two days. "'I couldn't meet with Mr. Bounderby then, "'and your brother sent me away, and I tried to find you, but you was not to be found, "'and I went back to work. "'Soon as I come out of the mill to-night, "'I hastened to hear what was said of Stephen, "'for I know a pride he will come back to shame it. "'And then I went again to seek Mr. Bounderby, and I found him, "'and I told him every word I knew, and he believed no word I said, and brought me here.' "'So far that's true enough,' assented Mr. Bounderby, "'with his hands in his pockets and his hat on. "'But I have known you people before to-day, you'll observe, "'and I know you never die for want of talking. "'Now I recommend you not so much to mind talking just now as doing. "'You have undertaken to do something. "'All I remark upon that at present is, do it.' "'I have written to Stephen by the post that went out this afternoon, "'as I have written to him once before since he went away,' said Rachel, "'and he will be here at furthest in two days. "'Then I'll tell you something. 
"'You are not aware, perhaps,' retorted Mr. Bounderby, "'that you yourself have been looked after now and then, "'not being considered quite free from suspicion in this business, "'on account of most people being judged according to the company they keep. "'The post-office hasn't forgotten either. "'What I'll tell you is that no letter to Stephen Blackpool has ever got into it. "'Therefore, what has become of yours, I leave you to guess. "'Perhaps you're mistaken and never wrote any.' "'He hadn't been gone from here, young lady,' said Rachel, turning appealingly to Louisa, "'as much as a week, when he sent me the only letter I have had from him, "'saying that he was forced to seek work in another name.' "'Oh, by George!' cried Bounderby, shaking his head with a whistle. "'He changes his name, does he? "'That's rather unlucky, too, for such an immaculate chap. "'It's considered a little suspicious in courts of justice, I believe, "'when an innocent happens to have many names.' "'What?' said Rachel, with the tears in her eyes again. "'What young lady, in the name of mercy, was left the poor lad to do? "'The master's against him on one hand, the men against him on the other. "'He only wanting to work hard in peace and do what he felt right. "'Can a man have no soul of his own, no mind of his own? "'Must he go wrong all through with this side, or must he go wrong all through with that, "'or else be hunted like a hare?' "'Indeed, indeed, I pity him from my heart,' returned Louisa, "'and I hope that he will clear himself.' "'You need have no fear of that, young lady. He is sure.' "'All the sure, I suppose,' said Mr. Bounderby, "'for your refusing to tell where he is, eh?' "'He shall not through any act of mine come back "'with the unmerited reproach of being brought back. "'He shall come back of his own accord to clear himself.' "'and put all those that have injured his good character, "'and he not here for its defence, to shame. "'I have told him what has been done against him,' said Rachel, "'throwing off all distrust as a rock throws off the sea, "'and he will be here at furthest in two days.' "'Notwithstanding which,' added Mr. Bounderby, "'if he can be laid hold of any sooner, "'he shall have an earlier opportunity of clearing himself. "'As to you, I have nothing against you,' "'What you came and told me turns out to be true, "'and I have given you the means of proving it to be true, "'and there is an end of it. "'I wish you good-night, all. "'I must be off to look a little further into this.' "'Tom came out of his corner when Mr. Bounderby moved, "'moved with him, kept close to him, and went away with him. "'The only parting salutation of which he delivered himself "'was a sulky, "'Good-night, father.' "'With a brief speech and a scowl at his sister, "'he left the house.' Since his sheet-anchor had come home, Mr. Gradgrind had been sparing of speech. He still sat silent, when Louisa mildly said, "'Rachel, you will not distrust me one day when you know me better.' "'It goes against me,' Rachel answered in a gentler manner, "'to mistrust any one. But when I am so mistrusted, when we all are, I cannot keep such things quite out of my mind. I ask your pardon for having done you an injury. I don't think what I said now.' "'Yet I might come to think it again with the poor lad so wronged. "'Did you tell him in your letter,' inquired Sissy, "'that suspicion seemed to have fallen upon him "'because he had been seen about the bank at night? "'He would then know what he would have to explain on coming back "'and would be ready.' "'Yes, dear,' she returned, "'but I can't guess what can have ever taken him there. "'He never used to go there. "'It was never in his way. "'His way was the same as mine and not near it.' Sissy had already been at her side, asking her where she lived, and whether she might come to-morrow night to inquire if there were news of him. "'I doubt,' said Rachel, "'if he can be here till next day.' "'Then I will come next night, too,' said Sissy. 
When Rachel, assenting to this, was gone, Mr. Gradgrind lifted up his head and said to his daughter, "'Louisa, my dear, I have never that I know of seen this man. Do you believe him to be implicated?' "'I think I have believed it, father, though with great difficulty. I do not believe it now.' "'That is to say, you once persuaded yourself to believe it, from knowing him to be suspected. His appearance and manner, are they so honest?' "'Very honest.' and her confidence not to be shaken. I ask myself, said Mr. Gradgrind, musing, does the real culprit know of these accusations? Where is he? Who is he? His hair had latterly began to change its colour. As he leaned upon his hand again, looking grey and old, Louisa, with a face of fear and pity, hurriedly went over to him, and sat close at his side. Her eyes, by accident, met Sissy's at the moment. Sissy flushed and started, and Louisa put her finger on her lip. Next night, when Sissy returned home and told Louisa that Stephen was not come, she told it in a whisper. Next night again, when she came home with the same account, and added that he had not been heard of, she spoke in the same low, frightened tone. From the moment of that interchange of looks they never uttered his name, or any reference to him, aloud— nor ever pursued the subject of the robbery, when Mr. Gradgrind spoke of it. The two appointed days ran out. Three days and nights ran out, and Stephen Blackpool was not come, and remained unheard of. On the fourth day, Rachel, with unabated confidence, but considering her dispatch to have miscarried, went up to the bank and showed her letter from him with his address at a working colony, one of many, not upon the main road, sixty miles away. Messengers were sent to that place, and the whole town looked for Stephen to be brought in next day. During this whole time, the whelp moved about with Mr. Bounderby like his shadow, assisting in all the proceedings. He was greatly excited, horribly fevered, bit his nails down to the quick, spoke in a hard, rattling voice, and with lips that were black and burnt up. At the hour when the suspected man was looked for, the whelp was at the station, offering to wager that he had made off before the arrival of those who were sent in quest of him, and that he would not appear. The whelp was right. The messengers returned alone. Rachel's letter had gone. Rachel's letter had been delivered. Stephen Blackpool had decamped in that same hour, and no soul knew more of him. The only doubt in Coketown was whether Rachel had written in good faith, believing that he really would come back, or warning him to fly. On this point opinion was divided. Six days, seven days, far on into another week, the wretched whelp plucked up a ghastly courage and began to grow defiant. Was the suspected fellow the thief? A pretty question. If not, where was the man, and why did he not come back? Where was the man, and why did he not come back? In the dead of night, the echoes of his own words, which had rolled heaven knows how far away in the daytime, came back instead, and abided by him until morning. End of section 18